and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Emily Neumeyer. And I'm Nir Shafir. And today we have with us Dr. Emine Fetvaja, Associate Professor in the Department of History of Art and Architecture at Boston University. And today we'll be basing our talk on Emine's recent book, Picturing History at the Ottoman Court, which, recent, which last year won the Fuat Kruperlu Book Prize from the Ottoman and Turkish Studies Association. We'll also be touching on a companion volume, Writing History at the Ottoman Court, uh, which Emine edited with uh, Erdem Chipa. So Emine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So today we'll be talking about paintings in illustrated manuscripts. And I think a lot of our listeners uh, know these as miniature paintings. Could you, could you give us a little bit of a, of a background on, um, on these paintings? And um, actually, I, I think there's, there's a bit of a controversy about calling them miniature paintings. Uh, so could you give us a little bit more background about what these are? And Sure. Um, it's not so much a controversy anymore. Okay. Those of us in the field of sort of uh, book arts, let's say, yeah. of the Islamic world tend to call these paintings, paintings, because mm -hmm. that is what they are. The term miniature was used much earlier in the scholarship and is considered these days to be a little bit condescending mm -hmm. and not giving these paintings their due, the respect that's due to them or something like that. Anyway, it's just now become a habit to just, for me anyway, to call them as paintings. Mm -hmm. um, the word illustration is also often used and I use it too. And mostly these paintings are illustrating texts. There are, uh, of course, some that are separate from texts, but many of them do illustrate texts. When we use the term illustration, we might lose sight of the fact that they are not simply uh, reflecting like a mirror everything that's in the text into the visual realm, but rather they're actually commentaries themselves. And uh, many of these paintings are ways to highlight certain parts of the text and also sometimes even give sort of subversive readings to the text. So they really function as conveyors of messages um, at times equivalent to, other times subservient to the texts that they illustrate. So who made these, who made these paintings? Um, the paintings that I have worked on uh, for the book that you uh, mentioned, um, the Picturing History book, um, many of these were made at or around the Ottoman court. Um, sometimes we know the names of the illustrators because they're listed in documents that sort of talk about who was paid how much for what project. Um, very rarely or almost never are Ottoman history manuscripts signed, I think, by painters. I'm trying to think and I can't, I hope I'm not making a mistake, I'm not remembering any signatures. <laughs> but um, anyway, there aren't many, even if, even if there are any. Uh, so we have the names of these artists because they're listed in wage registers and not because they're signing their works. And many of them are employed on an ad hoc basis for specific projects. So let's say someone at the court, more often than not a grand vizier or a high-ranking eunuch, will decide to commission a book about something. Um, maybe it's easier to talk about concrete examples. So... One example I talked about in the manuscript, um, the chief white eunuch, Babu Sade Asa, um, 
uh, Gazanfer uh, walks out of the audience of Mehmet III. This is late 16th century. Mehmet III is, what, 1596-1603? He walks out of the sultan's audience and turns to an author who happens to be sort of waiting uh, that he wants him to write about the account of the recent wars in, in Iran. And so the author goes home and does his writing, and then... Um, and so this is the sort of commissioning of the book. Now, the eunuch just walked out of the sultan's audience. That's all we know. So it's very hard to know whether it's the sultan himself or the eunuch who decided that the book should be made. But it's probably a combination of the two of them. A decision is reached inside the room, and then once the eunuch walks out, he, he asks for it. So there's the initial sort of act of commissioning for that example. And then once the book, once the text is written, usually uh, a group will be appointed at the palace and they will be assigned sort of salaries and everything and they will work on the project. And then once it's finished, often they will go back to whatever their regular jobs may be. So it seems like there are artists who are almost regularly employed as artists in the late 16th century because there are a lot of projects happening. Um, but we also know of cases where people sort of come in from the provinces, work on a special project, and then are sent back to where where they're working. Mm -hmm. So, how many people would it take to say make one book? It's a good question. <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, I'm trying to think of the documents that I have looked at. So there are you'd have certainly have an author. Often it's the author who supervises the production of the manuscript. You'd have two or three scribes or calligraphers, um, and certainly you'd have one, maybe two people doing the illumination, which is not the paintings, but all the other sort of beautifying of the page. And then you'd have a few, two or three artists, painters. Right. So a whole studio, a team. Yeah, people, a whole yeah. studio, of team. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. this was really a team project producing these kinds of books. Yes, always a team project. And we tend to think of paintings as, you know, single author works of art, but right. they're really, usually someone does an underdrawing, another person is responsible for laying in all the gold, and someone else is responsible for doing the trees, and someone specializes in buildings, and someone else does the people. Um, it's... Uh, David Roxborough had once said in class many, many, many years ago now that it's good to think of these paintings as kind of like works of performance art. Mm -hmm. Beethoven writes the script, someone conducts, and someone's playing the piano, and others <laughs> are playing the violin, and it all sort of comes together. But depending on who's doing the conducting, the piece sounds a little bit different every time. Right. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the conductors, for the Ottomans anyway, for the history works, is usually the official court historian. And for a large part of the period that I wrote about, that's a man by the name of Said Lokman. Mm -hmm. So he's... It's his inflection that we get on many of these. So the, the role of the, of the court historian, when does that role position really come, emerge as, as a prominent position in the Ottoman court? Um, Christine Woodhead has written about the history of the um, Ottoman court historian, and she places the beginning with the appointment of Arifi in the 1550s to... Um, Compose the Suleiman Name. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there are two other sort of intermediary figures, and then um, Lokman 
takes the position in the 1560s and he's there until the 1590s. He's replaced then by Tali Kizadeh, who works mostly for Mehmed III. Um, and then we have the name of one other figure who is appointed, but we don't actually have anything by him. So it's a short-lived 50-some years of having an official court historian who's responsible for writing Shehnameh's, mm -hmm. which is actually a very specific kind of project. They're not writing prose histories. They're not writing um, a, a straightforward chronicles. What they are charged with writing from the beginning are Persian verse accounts of Ottoman history that are written in the same meter and the rhyme scheme as the Shahnameh, the 11th century Persian epic of Kings, the Book of Kings. And, um, and they sort of fit the stories of the Ottomans into the molds of the Shahnameh so that the Ottoman rulers or generals appear as Shahnameh heroes. Many of the values of the Shahnameh are things that sort of come to life again in these Ottoman histories. It's just interesting to me how the word Shehnameh becomes synonymous with history, mm -hmm. but it's not, right? It's a very specific kind of history. There are other histories being written at the Ottoman court or, or in the Ottoman Empire. So as we've discussed, book paintings are very important in the visual culture of the Ottoman court, and they can appear in all different kinds of texts, but in the specific context of these history writings, which really exploded, as you say, in the, in the end of the, at the second half of the 16th century, um, what kind of themes would be um, visualized in, in the paintings that accompanied these texts? Um, so many of the, I mean, these paintings are, illustrations to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. So they are accompanying texts which are talking about mostly military campaigns and celebrations or audiences. Um, so they're always sort of official events or military events, one or the other. Um, there's There are a few funerals, but these are also sort of official events, I guess. So these are generally the, the themes that we see. You, you might have images of the sultan sitting in, um, in the palace, sort of meeting with important people. So this would be an audience scene. Or you might have an image of a military commander sitting in front of his tent, meeting with important people, discussing, mm -hmm. sort of strategizing. Um, or you might see sort of the army in the act of, you know, walking towards battle or... So maybe this would be a good time to talk about a, a specific example. And by the way, on the website, in accompanying this podcast, we'll have a few images for you to check out later. So um, let's start with this one. Um, this is a good one to begin with because it actually sort of encapsulates some of the themes we've been talking about, the questions you've been asking me about production, etc. This is a painting from a manuscript in the um, British Library, uh, the Shahnameh of Selim Khan. Uh, it's it was written by Lokman and um, probably around 1571. It's not dated um, and it was not finished. This to me is one of the really interesting manuscripts because this is one of those instances where we have a number of different drafts of the same manuscript. We have um, two drafts in the Topkapı which contain just text 
And then we have this draft in the British Library, which contains the beginnings of the text. And um, then there's the finished version again in the top couple. So three in the top couple, one in the British Library. This one, this painting, um, is, a, is one of the more complicated compositions that I have looked at as well. It's actually two paintings juxtaposed on the same page. The smaller one um, above has a kind of a stepped shape and it's actually representing a painting that is being or that was discussed in the context that's illustrated in the lower half of the page. So who, who's sitting in the, in the lower half so of the page? So in the lower half of the page, we have the people responsible for making the Shehnami Selim Khan. At the center, dressed in blue-gray, is uh, probably, the, uh, I mean, they're not identified, <laughs> right? But probably. No labels. Uh, yeah, no labels here. But probably, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm able to say all of this from the very detailed description of the event in the text that surrounds the painting. Mm. So the text talks about how a prominent historian around the Ottoman court was asked, uh, wanted to have events of the um, period written down in a Shahname format. So he decides to give his notes to uh, Lokman to write it up. So this lower half of the painting actually is a group portrait of those responsible for the making of the manuscript. At the center, um, seated in gray, is a prominent historian of the 16th century whose notes were used by Lokman, the author of the book we're looking at, um, to compose the text. Lokman is seated to the right. He's, I think, um, these people are discussed in the text and, of course, we can guess at who's being represented. They're not actually labeled here. But there's some interesting text on the painting, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. So to the right, dressed in dark green, is probably Lokman um, himself, who is um, the author of the text, as I said. Seated across from them um, is uh, are three figures. One of them is holding a, a little book in his hands, which actually has text written on it. And that, I believe, is probably the scribe of the manuscript, um, whose name was Sinan. And the text describes him, his, his pen, as being sort of as, as sharp as the, as the spear, which is what Sinan is. Seated next to him is a man, you'll notice if you look really closely, that's holding a painting. And that is a sketch of the painting that we see in the upper half of the page here. And that is probably um, Osman, who is responsible for the paintings in the uh, manuscript. He's listed as sort of the, the chief nakash, the chief illustrator who's responsible for these paintings, but he can't be the only, he's not the only one. It's teamwork, as we discussed earlier. And then seated in the lower left corner is probably the um, illuminator um, who was commissioned. So these are sort of, this, as I said, is a group portrait. And then on the right, in the back, are two sort of servants who are bringing in other, another book um, for these guys to look at. 
according to the story of how this book was um, composed or how the final project was, was done, these three artists, uh, artists and calligrapher, um, were asked to present examples of their work to um, the Grand Vizier and others in the Sultan's retinue, and they examined these first examples and then decided to go ahead with the production. So what we see above is the exemplary painting that was done in order to decide whether this should be the artist who will illustrate this, this manuscript or not. So in the upper image, we see um, the audience of the Ottoman Divan, a group of sort of ministers here, with uh, seated in the Kubelta, in the, in the Imperial Council Chamber. And um, if you look at, this is also like a triangular composition actually, at the very top, underneath this tower here, we see the Sultan Selim II behind a grilled window. This is the, the window from behind which the Sultan would sort of listen to the, the Imperial Council meetings, um, except he's visible here, and in real life he wouldn't be visible. It's sort of like this big brother situation, right? You don't know if he's there or not, but you have to behave yourself as if he is. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Selim II is, is visible here, directly underneath him, dressed in white and a little bit taller than everyone and bigger than everyone else, is Sokolo Mehmet Pasha, his grand vizier, who is the mastermind behind the beginnings of this project, who is Lokman's patron too. And then seated to either side of Sokolo Mehmet Pasha to his right, but our left are the, are the other sort of viziers, and to his left, our right, are um, the two military judges of Anatolia and Romelia, and then underneath them are people who have come to sort of give petitions to the divan, etc. So this representative painting is really about the political order of the Ottoman Empire, right? This is how decisions get made. You have the ruler in the background guaranteeing that justice is done, and then those who are representing him politically are the members of the Imperial Council. And then if you think of the two paintings together as they're juxtaposed on the same page, those who are representing the Sultan and his representatives, those who are representing them in image and word are the author, the illustrator, the calligrapher, etc., of the manuscript. So, these two paintings on this page are all about the um, sort of the, the process of making these manuscripts, but they're also about this larger idea of representing justice right. Right. and, and the order of the and representing the order of the Ottoman Empire. Sorry. Which I, of course, I assume is, is a major theme in these history. Yes, in these histories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as you mentioned, there there. We don't have labels for these texts, mm -hmm. um, but we we can we can make pretty good. We can read these paintings uh, according to different clues uh, that are given um, in terms of where someone's positioned, what they're wearing. Yeah. And so you mentioned you just mentioned political order. In what way is this political order expressed through the visual? In what way is this um, hierarchy? political hierarchies represented in the paintings? The, well, this is again a great example to answer that question. So if you look at the upper part of the image, we've got the upper half, right? The, the, the smaller painting inserted sort of in the, uh, above. It's got a triangular uh, or a pyramidal sort of composition of people 
On top of that triangle, or on top of the pyramid, is the sultan, who's higher than everyone else. Um, and then directly underneath him is the grand vizier, who's supposed to be representing the sultan. Um, he's a stand-in, he's a, he's a lieutenant in the real sense of the term, right? He takes the place of the sultan. Um, and then uh, slightly lower than him, spreading out to either side, spreading the base, mm -hmm. are the other members of the Imperial Council. So this comp the visual composition helps us to understand how the relationships between the Sultan and his Grand Vizier and the rest of his court were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. this pain these paintings don't actually tell us about how things really were. They tell us about how the people who made these paintings wanted things to be perceived because of course <laughs> they are representations. I think I like to think of them as more prescriptive rather than descriptive. They're mm -hmm. prescribing the ideal relationships between between these people as opposed to describing. They're not, I mean, they're documents, but of course all of our archival documents are interpretive too. So right. these paintings are just as just as factual and not at the same time as the written documents that we work with. That in what way do we see shifts in the political order reflect in paintings? As we move into the last quarter or the last 10 years of the 16th century, we start to see different kinds of historical manuscripts being illustrated and therefore different people appearing on the pages of these manuscripts. One good example, which we don't have an illustration of here, it is in my book, it's a manuscript in the Topkapı Palace, the Surname, the, the Imperial Book of Celebration, is a long text all about the circumcision uh, ceremony of Murat III's son, who eventually becomes the next ruler, Mehmet III. So there, it's not a war account, it's, uh, it's an event that takes place in the capital and the prime uh, movers and shakers there are the sultan, his family, and the chief black eunuch, Mehmet Ağa, who was responsible for commissioning the manuscript, but he also has a very active role in sponsoring the, um, the ceremony too. So there we have a different figure coming to the fore. Um, so as the political order shifts in the palace, as, as, as power goes from the Grand Vizier to other figures, like, uh, other figures like the eunuchs who are basically servants of the household, um, we see the topics of the paintings shift as well. So does it, in terms of shift, shifts in political power in the second half of the 16th century as they get reflected in who's represented in the paintings. I assume this also is reflected in who's commissioning these, these history, these history texts. Yes, absolutely. So the, we, um, when you look at Ottoman historical painting from afar, and if you just consider the titles of the books that are being considered, that are being, um, made titles like, the Shehname of Selim Khan, the Suleiman Name, the um, Shehname of, of, of Sultan Mehmet, you would think that these must be books that are commissioned by the ruler and are only about the ruler. But even these sort of very classical examples of Ottoman history painting and Ottoman historical manuscripts are really about 
the court and the ruler as surrounded by the people around him. And many of them are commissioned by the grandees at court. And of course, as the power balances shift in the, 16th, in the second half or the last part of the 16th century, the patrons shift as well. Um, but as I also explained earlier when we were talking about the example of Ghazan Farah stepping out of Mehmet III's audience and commissioning a book, it's also sort of hard to know, right, who's making that decision. So we need to think of this group as a group. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And I'm Emily Neumeyer. And we're here today speaking with Emine Fethvaji. Um, so you were speaking about how these paintings were kind of viewed by not just the Sultan, but kind of the whole court, the whole world of the palace. I mean, how do we get, how do we access that world of readers and viewers? What can we find out about it? Great. Thanks for asking about this because it's something I feel strongly about, actually. So we, I think I was saying earlier how we assume these books to be only about the sultan and only commissioned by him, but they're commissioned by others at court and they're about the entire court system. They're not just about the sultan. And they're not read by just the sultan either. Um, I have learned from... Uh, basically sort of reading the texts, of course, themselves, but also looking at documents from the Top in the Topkapı Palace archives that list the books that are kept that were kept in um, the treasury, the palace treasury. And next to these lists of books, which give the titles, are also names of people who have checked books out. And then their names are crossed off when they clearly bring the books back. Mm -hmm. And among those names is the Sultan's name. So clearly he's, yes, of course, he's a bit more special than everyone else, <laughs> but he also has to bring the books back. So from these records, we know that um, books, some of the books at the top are being kept in the treasury, but the treasury functions like a lending library to all of those pages who are those young men who are being trained in the palace. So there are lists of books that are handed out to various students, you know, to, to the various um, Ajemi Olans or pages, I guess we can call them in English, who are being, who are in, residing in one dormitory or another in the Topkapı. So we know that during their education at the palace, these young men are reading these books. So they're a very important part of the audience because, of course, they're going to grow up and be the next generation of the ruling elite. And here, as part of their education, they're learning the ideal Ottoman system by looking at these manuscripts. So it's really a way these man histories of the Ottoman court are, in a way, geared towards the future to sort of influence and shape the future of this court. Um, so, lending library. And then, um, and there are, you know, 
couple of thousand people living at the Topkapı. So the audience is much larger than just the person of the sultan. Right, it's a miniature city of sorts. Exactly. Um, and there are a few visual representations of um, books and book reading um, in, the, in the manuscripts themselves. These usually tend to show the sultan and a group around him. One example that we have digitally available is a painting from the Harvard um, Art Museums. Um, it is a folio from a manuscript of the Jawahir Al-Gharaib, uh, which is a translation of the Bahr al-Ajaib in English, let me say, Gems of Marvels, a translation of the Sea of Wonders by the author Jenabi, and made in Istanbul around 1582. Um, in this painting, uh, that's at the, the painting at Harvard right now, we see an image of Murat III seated in his privy chamber, in his library, um, with books in, on the shelves on either side of him. And notice how there are other individuals, of course, in the, manusc in the, in the painting, in the scene, in the room with him. There are um, the servants of the privy chamber, the guys to his left, our right, with the red headgear, who are almost like attributes of the sultan. We always see them next to the sultan in these paintings. Um, one of them is holding the sword, and the other one, I can't actually quite make out what he's holding, but often it's someone who's got the water bottle. And then we have other servants, um, and some midgets in the lower, or dwarves in the lower part of the painting. So the sultan's um, close companions are also in the same room with him when he's consulting his books. Now, in this painting, he's not actively looking at them, but the painting provides us with the context in which some of the books are kept. So some are in the treasury, some are in, um, in the privy chamber with the sultan. I also saw lists of books that were in the harem, so we know that the ladies are reading them too and looking at them. Um, I've also seen notes, this was really fascinating, in a volume of the, um, of the, uh, the biography of the Prophet Muhammad, the six-volume illustrated biography, Siri Nebi, commissioned by Murat III. One of those volumes is in the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin. And on one of its pages is a note inserted in the 18th century sometime, so maybe of interest to you, yes. 1750s, <laughs> I think, that I forget the names of the individuals, but they're all described in detail in my book. <laughs> one of the mothers of, uh, of one of the Shehzades has written in the book, basically hoping for, you know, if you read this note, oh reader, please send, you know, pray say prayers, pray for wow. me and pray for my son. So here we have a, a book created and finished around 1595, 150 years later in the hands of one of the women in the harem. She's holding on to it for long enough to be able to write into it, right? Right. And, and sort of, she's reading it, looking at it, thinking about her son, etc. <laughs> she's so, leaving a message and for... And she's leaving a message for future later, generations. Future readers. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the... I guess, yeah, thanks, that's true. So that, in a way, corroborates what I was saying a couple of minutes ago, which is really that these books are all about future readers. I mean, they're not all, but part of their goal is to give ideas and teach the future generations. So there's very much the assumption that they're made for posterity. They're not made just for the here and now. 
So this is, I think you've given us a wonderful description of kind of all the different actions and readings and audiences of the court. Uh, and just kind of to give the listeners a broader view of the world of kind of Ottoman illustrated manuscripts. I mean, what, what can we f know about kind of uh, uh, illustration, the production of illustrations and illustrated manuscripts outside of the court? Mm -hmm. I mean, some people talk about this, you know, these market artists and things like that. Right. Um, so thanks for asking that. The world beyond the palace. Right. Um, I want to say a couple of things. One, even when we are looking at these books made for courtly patrons, um, the artists who are working on them are also working on manuscripts made for other slightly lower group, a slightly lower group of patrons. So we know that um, sort of illustrated books are being made and made for and used by actually a slightly larger segment of the Ottoman um, uh, population than just those in the palace. Certainly we're talking about very wealthy people who are able to afford these things, but um, a couple of concrete examples. We know... Um, we actually know of things being produced even outside of Istanbul. So uh, Mustafa Ali, the great historian of the late 16th century, um, when he's posted in Aleppo, he uh, is able to commission an artist to illustrate a version of his um, Nusret Name, his account of the Georgian uh, of the um, Ottoman Persian Wars of like 1578 to 90. Um, so he's able to get an artist in Aleppo to illustrate a book for him, which he then presents to the palace as an example of sort of what he's capable of. But so there's someone there in Aleppo who's capable of, of, of painting a historical Ottoman manuscript, and here we have a sort of a middle to high-ranking official who's able to commission the services of an artist. In Aleppo, we also have the case of um, of an Ottoman uh, of another Ottoman um, military figure. Again, in the um, sort of late 16th century, the author of the Shijat Name, who is uh, not only he's he's a he's as I said military figure, but he's writing the text. So he's a historian. It's an account of his own. Um, heroic deeds in the Ottoman Persian Wars. Wow. <laughs> and he's Self -promotion. able to. Yes, very much. <laughs> I mean, these books are the sort of the PR mechanisms of their day. Mm. Um, you commission a book about how great you are and you present it to the palace and then you're promoted. Mm -hmm. This That's is, this is, so. uh, this is, uh, touches on something I wanted to ask. Um, in terms of, um, these works can be prescriptive and even a source of, community building or consensus i'm also interested I, I wanted to ask in terms of if you know how does these efforts of self-promotion can they ever go wrong is it does do they become a source of conflict uh, in, in any way that we can can see now um they get co-opted hmm. okay let me go back to the story of the shenami of selim the second okay. the painting with which we began the story of its production so that project begins under the guidance of sokolu mehmed pasha and it begins with the account of the zigetvar campaign which is the last campaign of suleiman the magnificent this is when suleiman dies and sokolu is so instrumental in uh, ensuring a smooth transition from Suleiman to Selim II by making sure 
um, nobody knows about Suleiman's death before Selim can come to meet the army, etc. So the Shehnameh of Selim Khan was supposed to begin with the Zigetvar campaign, and we know this because of the draft in the British Library, which contains the account of the Zigetvar campaign. But the final version of the book, which was actually completed um, when uh, during the reign of Murat III, when Sokolo was quickly losing his power and then eventually died, was assassinated, others at court were becoming more powerful. And um, the Zigetvar campaign was edited out of the book so that in the final version, it's not there. Wow. Okay. Um, first, first, the companions of Selim II, who towards the end of his reign have even more power and they're resenting Sokolu, they start to sort of take this out. And then more so during the reign of Murat III, when the book is completed and Sokolu's grand vizier, but really fallen out of favor, that, that show others in Murat III's court in a favorable light are illustrated and, you know, written about and illustrated in the book rather than events that only champion Sokolu. So the project changes because of changing power dynamics. So it's not quite an example of things sort of going wrong, the way you were asking me, but the story is changed so that it will not go wrong. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if people are seen to be... Um, Stepping out of bounds. Of exactly. What's appropriate. Getting too big for his breeches. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> for Sokolo. That's definitely yeah. how we could, yeah. one way we could describe it. So we've talked about the context of commissioning and reading and accessing and borrowing these books in in the 16th century, but I wanted I was wondering what it as an art historian, what is it like for you in the 21st century accessing these manuscripts today? Where are they found? Um, are are they digitized? How does this affect how how you experience the manuscripts okay. for your research? Um, well, some of it is very similar to the 16th century context. Many of the books that I wrote about are in the Topkapi Palace library, mm -hmm. which... So they haven't gone very far. No, they haven't <laughs> gone very far, and they're accessed by a select few, yeah. and then people know about them through word of mouth. That's how it worked in the 16th century, yeah. too. <laughs> so. Um, so you get you know, permission to do, to do your research and you go to the library. And um, I was very lucky as a graduate student. I spent a whole year every day, you know, Monday through Friday at the, at the top of the library looking at manuscripts. And it was really a very, you, you feel very privileged, of yeah. course. Not only are you in the 
palace, but differently than the 16th century, you're now looking at things that are 400 years old. Yeah. Or maybe not so differently because the Topkapı treasury also contained earlier masterpieces, That's which true, yeah. clearly people were looking at in the 16th century and the 17th. This is something I'm interested in now for another project. Right, of course, these paintings, you know, yeah. emerged from an earlier context, context of course. Exactly. Yeah. So you look at them sort of in person. Many of them are digitized now. Also, I have to say there's a difference between the very early 21st century and where we are now. Right. So when I did my <laughs> research, uh, I didn't I mean, not that I wanted it, but there wasn't really the option of um, looking at digital versions. As an art historian, I would much prefer to have the actual thing in front of me. The, um, today, many of the manuscripts are digitized. So this past summer, actually, when I was at the Topkapı, some of the manuscripts that are in a bit more sort of fragile condition than others, they wanted me to first look at the images on the computer screens that they have there and then of course when you're looking at them in with these high resolution images you can zoom in you can look at details etc and in terms of gathering information that's useful but in terms of trying to understand how these books and albums functioned in the contexts in which they were made the screen is not very useful because a 16th century viewer was not able to blow things up right? They're able to just look at what's in front of them. You can bring your eye, you can bring the painting closer to your eye, but you can't, you can't play with it the way you do on a computer screen. Um, so anyway, these new technologies, I guess, give us new tools, but it's really important as art historians for us to think about these paintings as, um, paintings that were meant to go in books and right. the way you experience mm -hmm. a book you turn the pages um, uh, you are able to sort of compare the the picture with the text or the other picture that's next to it or on the other side you get a different sense of the rhythm of how a book works when you are reading it and turning the pages versus clicking on a screen and just looking at the paintings uh, uh, yeah. I know that you know a lot of the what well, Okay, miniatures have been essentially cut out of books yeah. uh, and then sold to international art markets or, you know, yeah. people earlier in the 16th, 17th century would cut them out and put them into albums. Uh -huh. And so in a sense, I mean, even back then, people were kind of viewing them as kind of disembodied or kind of separate little images, right? Not necessarily within a book. Um, but if but then you're looking at an album as a as a complete work of art, which has a right. logic and a rhythm and and sense to yeah. it. Or also, maybe I, sorry, I'll yeah. put a different way. So like when we see them in museums, or when yes. we see them, you know, when they're cut out and sold as individual. Yes, we images, want to cry. I want to cry. <laughs> 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 we see them kind of sold as individual pieces of art, yeah. right? And we just encounter them as yeah. kind of like this one. Book. image then how do, how do we put them back into that book how do we reconstruct their original context and viewing and so forth if we just have that separate image um well that's a good question um perhaps that is something that can be done digitally but i i just wanted to sort of remind us that we're not meant to encounter them one by one. There are some drawings, sure, that were made as sort of independent works of art that are meant to be by themselves. But mostly we're talking about the arts of the book. And so remembering that it's an object that contains more than just the one painting that you're interested in 
is um, important. But I don't really know. I mean, I don't know. How do you reconstruct it once, once, once it's spread on the walls of museums around the world? Exhibitions bring them together. There's the very famous example of the um, of the great Mongol Shahnameh. Almost all, I think, of its known paintings were brought together for the legacy of Genghis Khan show at the Metropolitan, and certainly the catalog of yeah. the exhibition brings them together. Um, but it's still not the seeing them on the wall is behind glass is still not, of course, the same experience as being able to turn the pages here. Okay, well, I guess with those words, we encourage all of our listeners to uh, get permission to go to the Topkapi Library <laughs> <laughs> and uh, view these manuscripts in the book format. In the or maybe the we flesh. can we can uh, we can we can use this as a public forum for a call for more facsimiles because yes. those are very useful. Very That's useful. Yeah. It's one way of disseminating. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, so thank you so much for joining us today. And I'd like to remind our listeners that we will have a series of images that we discussed today and, and a few more available on the website. So please check that out at www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. And uh, there will also be a bibliography there for listeners who'd like to read a bit more and uh, find more of Emine's work. Um, and please also go to our Facebook group, uh, where you can join a community of other interested listeners. So thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.